This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Welcome to a special Halloween edition, episode 12 of the Total Saints podcast. My name is Ben Stanfield and I'm the terrifying ogre who hosts Total Saints podcast. I'm joined as ever by our regular guest, a man who toils every week over a cauldron of stories and events to ultimately concoct a magic spell of journalistic wizardry on us all. It's the Southern Daily Echo's own chief gravedigger, I mean sports writer, Adam Leach. (laughs) Oh, very impressive, Adam. I can see you're getting into the Halloween spirit already. All back safe and sound from Brighton then? Yes, uh, all back safe and sound. It's, it was quite a long day, um, probably not made any easier by the game. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's uh, all done and dusted. Another day, another dollar, as they say. In a way, I was disappointed that this wasn't episode 13, as I thought that would have made it even more suitable for Halloween. But anyway, Adam and I will be looking back at the Brighton game from the Amex and discuss next weekend's game against Burnley, which will likely end with a petrifyingly incorrect prediction from both of us. As well as that, we're also going to have a chat about two former Southampton managers who've been in the news this week, Ronald Koeman and Claude Puel, in a section I've cleverly entitled Pushed and Pulled. Yep, the creative juices have been working once again, Adam, you, you can tell that. So. Brilliant. It's, 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 it's honestly genius, and I don't, I don't use that word lightly. Well, I am thinking about a different career because it's clearly wasted talent, but there we go. Um, without any further ado, let's get this hair-raising, spine-chilling Halloween Total Saints podcast special off to a start. After more frustration, if you're a Saints fan, we came away from the Amex with a draw, both teams scoring one goal each. Am I am I overdoing it now, Adam, do you reckon? Uh, maybe, one goal. maybe a little. Yeah, all right. Maybe I'll just hold fire that a little bit then. That was just a bit... Uh, it was a spectacular own goal, oh, that one. See? Oh, see? I know you started, but there we go. Um, another, another case of not really knowing if Saints are making steps forwards or backwards at the moment... The same demons were apparent with a lack of real game plan, goal-scoring chances and identity. Firstly, though, I must congratulate you, Adam, on the prediction of 1-1 that you gave last week. I was thinking as well, Dean, to be fair to him, he did say 0-0, so he kind of got it right, but not as, as spot on as you. So I imagine you've been driving back from Brighton, wallowing in that success. Oh, I've, I've told everybody who'll listen to me that I've seen ever since a game, it was 1-0. And what's unusual for me is that quite often, because obviously we do these podcasts, it's quite a few days in advance of the match the next match I'm predicting for. So in the week, I will often change my mind. And, and obviously in the press room and stuff, when you're chatting to people before a game, quite often we'll say, oh, what do you reckon is going to happen today? And, you know, we'll have a chat about it and normally take a pun at the scoreline. And quite often I'll, I'll have changed my mind because I figure if I'm not going to get it right with one, well, if I have another guess, then you never know, I might get it right. Today, I stuck with it. I stuck with one all the whole way through. And at the end, I, I was, I felt pretty pleased with myself, to be honest. 
you're the only man to cheer wildly when the referee blew his whistle, I reckon. Everyone else was, a, everyone else was asleep by then, I think, but there we go. So, uh, um, look, we're not going to dwell too much on the same coffin of annoyances, such as lack of bodies when attacking, a couple of attacking players going missing again, and inconsistent goalkeeper. I said goal there, not goalkeeper. Adam, we got off to a perfect start, scoring the first goal through Stephen Davis. Surely that was a chance, really, for Saints then to really apply some pressure and take the game to Brighton. But they didn't do that. They sat back, looked a bit lethargic and invited Brighton on, onto them. And in the end, I guess it was definitely two points dropped rather than one gained when you look at the, the state of game, even at half time. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. It was another two points dropped and a bit of a familiar tale. How many times have we been there this season and said it's points dropped uh, that should have been gained? And absolutely, a great start. Uh, we've bemoaned the sort of lack of fast starts and things like that from Saints. Well, a goal after eight minutes is, uh, you know, as fast as it comes, really, most of the time. And as well, in total control, I thought, in the first half. But very, very comfortable. Yes, Brighton were, were obviously playing pretty poorly. But nonetheless, Saints were looked very comfortable. Uh, Pellegrino had gone with a sort of a 4-1, 4-1 type of formation. Uh, and that worked really effectively as well. And there wasn't much space between the lines for Brighton. I thought, yeah, this is this is good for Saints. It wasn't exciting to watch, but actually it was Saints kind of doing a bit of a number on Brighton as as the, the sort of the sort of thing that they've experienced themselves at home in recent times. Saints, especially with the early goal, were able to kind of drop off a little bit deeper and, and sort of play more on the counter attack and that seemed to quite suit the way that they'd uh, lined up today. But then Half-time really, I mean, changed everything. And um, obviously Brighton then got the early goal at the start of the second half and Saints were just, just sat off them too much. I don't really understand quite what happened. And, and having heard from the manager after the game and, and sort of secondhand from colleagues who spoke to players, I think that even there may be a little bit bemused as to quite why they allowed it to go the way they did. I mean, the manager seemed more concerned, I think, with the fact that they kind of sat up and didn't push for the second in the first half when they had that dominance of the game. And I think a lot of people watching were a bit more concerned that they seemed to sit off a bit more in the second half. But it's a, it was definitely uh, another two points drop because Brighton didn't even play, I, I didn't think, played particularly well in the second half. Either they were better, but not great. Um, so to get an away win is, is, is hard in the Premier League, obviously. So... Uh, when you're you come up against a team who don't play particularly well and who were beatable anyway, and you've had the lead, yes, another two points, two points thrown away. I'm afraid. Pellegrino certainly said to the official website after the game that he he'd been keen for them to push for that second goal in the first half and almost try and kill the game off. So it was it was pretty apparent that that wasn't happening though, even if that was what he wanted to to do. So wh where's the sort of breakdown in in who should be driving that? I mean, is that up to him on the, the, the sidelines really to get that out message out to the players and be driving them on and or is that up to the players to think right you know we can move in for the kill here because clearly it's breaking down somewhere along the line the, they, they obviously have to have a game plan going out they're not a Sunday league team they're not going out you know, having not seen each other all week to play on a Sunday morning they're, they, they surely are and if not they should be discussing the tactics and how they approach different situations in the game is what most uh, professional football teams would do. You know, what, at what point do we want to? Would we push further forward? At what point would we want to try and defend? What would be a good result, and that that we would try and perhaps defend if we had to? So, with that in mind, you think that you would assume that these sort of scenarios would have been discussed. But and then, of course, it's actually over to the players on the field. There's only so much the manager can do at that point. I mean, it's really over to them to. To, to do it um, and to enact whatever plans they've got uh, but I still feel a lack of confidence is still dogs the team somewhat and in that sort of situation where you're saying come on keep going keep pushing it's kind of easier to get nervous and to sort of sit back and kind of hope you've done enough especially if you know and you sense the opponent is struggling and isn't playing particularly well uh, that's certainly what Stoke did against Saints the other week when, when they drop back with a, trying to defend their goal. Obviously, Saints equalised and Stoke then came again. Um, we didn't really see that much of it from Saints in terms of really pushing again once the uh, equaliser had gone in. So I think the, the blame probably is is shared. It was an interesting view today. The Amex uh, Stadium press box is quite low down and um, you're sort of right behind the tunnel and right behind the dugouts. And actually, I was in the 
only the second row, which is, is very close to the dugout. So I got to see Pellegrino close up. Really, it's the first time that I've actually been able to sit there and, and kind of just study what he's up to during a game. He seems very passionate. I mean, there's a lot of uh, arm throwing and, and sort of gesticulation and clear frustrations when, when he doesn't think things are being done correctly. I, I, I never quite buy into that because I think, well, I don't know that the best managers are necessarily the ones that throw their toys out of the pram every every 10 seconds. But yeah, I just think in terms of an overall package today, again, it just wasn't quite right. The balance isn't quite there. I remember when we came into the Premier League first season with Nigel Atkins and Henry Winter wrote about, I think his quote was something along the lines of they flooded forward like the Red Arrows. Watching that game again today, Gabbiadini looked, just looked so isolated and if and when on the rare occasion that balls were coming into the box. I mean, he was the only man in there against four or five Brighton defenders. No one really busting a gut to get in there and score a goal, which is something that we really thrived and lived on for sort of three, four seasons prior to Claude Puel taking over. And so when, when you look at the fixtures just around the corner and the lack of goal scoring opportunities against those teams, surely the nervousness now is that it's going to get worse in terms of scoring goals and winning points before it gets better. Well, that's got to be a fear. There's no doubt about that. I mean, firstly, I completely agree. I mean, Gabby Adini is uh, a com- cuts a completely isolated figure, doesn't he, in a day like today? I mean, what, what service did he get of any note? And with all due respect to Gabby Adini, he is not the kind of striker who regularly is going to make much happen himself out of nothing. Occasionally he will, but he need- he's one of those guys, he needs good service. He'll He'll do well on good service, but he needs to get it. He, you can't just put him up there and, and expect him to do so. He's not really that kind of player. And um, it, it's interesting. I was talking to some people that, uh, after the game, and they sort of put it to me, and, and I tend to agree with this. That it's, it's interesting how Saints have changed, really. When you think about this, all the success they've had with a big, with sort of a target man, a Lambert and uh, a Pella, and then they've kind of they've kind of tried to keep everything else the same, but have completely adapted what they want up front. They now want sort of this quick nippy on the shoulder in behind type style of strikers uh, to play up there on a regular basis. And it's just not working because they haven't quite worked out how to supply that person with the service that they require to thrive. And it means that they just end up, I think being a bit, a bit too toothless. I don't think it's exactly stretching the imagination to say that given the lack of goals, but I agree. I think the problem is that the pressure, I don't feel, has really come on them yet, but I, I really sense it's there. And I think, uh, I know we'll talk about Burnley in a minute, and I will talk about this a lot more, but this is a massive game now, I think, for them. This is a massive game because these this batch of four games, which we highlighted some time ago as being really crucial to the season, five points thus far isn't good enough, I don't think. If you've got any ambition to do anything, of any note, it's not good enough. If you want to make sure that you're not worrying about looking over your shoulder, given the fixtures they've got coming up, I think you would have needed, would have been saying, oh, they really need eight points. So that means you've got to beat Burnley to start thinking, well, at least we haven't got to be too worried with these fixtures coming up. So the pressure is only increasing now and it is only going to increase. So now it's that backs to the wall type job. It'll be very interesting to see how Saints react. And it will also be very interesting to see how they react when they come back after the break and they've got to play a lot of these top six teams because, let's be honest, the, the emphasis has been on them to win the majority of the games they've played this season and they've really, really struggled quite badly in, in terms of actually really dominating. Even the games they've won, they haven't, you know, the, the, it's not been exactly great all-out domination, has it? It's been, it's been uh, they've played a bit better mainly and kind of just about done enough. I wonder whether will suddenly see an increase in performance when the when the pressure's off them, like when they're playing the, the really big teams, because they played really well against Man United, all right, they didn't get anything, but when everybody expected them to lose, they were really good. Now, that probably says a little bit about the players they've got there, more than anything, I would suggest, um, and, and how their, their mentality is at the moment. But yeah, I mean, that, that all stems from fragile confidence, and, and then if you're confidence is fragile you're going to struggle most when the pressure's on but boy there's some pressure next week at St Mary's to beat Burnley you mentioned there we stated between us probably that they need to get at least 10 points out of the four games against Newcastle West Brom Brighton and Burnley if they had realistic ambitions to to push for sort of seventh or eighth 
okay, we're unbeaten through those three games so far, but we can only achieve eight points now, as you mentioned, if we win against Burnley next weekend. I mean, overall, what have you made of the first 10 games of the season, if you if you sort of sum it up? I mean, have you seen any signs of progression? Because I think as fans, Adam, without sort of getting overly carried away, as I said at the start, it's hard to see whether they're taking steps forwards or backwards. I would tend to say that I, if I'm being honest, I haven't really seen all that much progression. I definitely haven't seen as much as I was hoping for. Uh, I think something that actually, uh, without giving everything away to the manager in advance, that I, I'm quite interested to ask him about, and I will this week when I speak to him if, if the opportunity arises, is he talked again before this game a lot about you can't really judge on nine games. It's still a work in progress. That, that Worse to that effect, anyway, I'm paraphrasing somewhat. Uh, but we're trying to get this identity nailed down. I can't, I can't for the life of me work out what the identity is. Now, I knew what the identity was under Puel, now, people didn't like it. I understand that. But you knew what they were about, Saints. They were a counter-attacking team who were going to play very, very defensively. They were going to concede very few goals. And they were going to occasionally score a goal or two. And they were going to nick a games here and there. And actually, you know, it had the effect that it had. They had an identity. It might not have been one that people liked, but they had an identity. Under Koeman, they had a clear identity. Pochettino, they had a clear identity. You could describe under all those managers, sort of the, roughly kind of the playing style, couldn't you? And, and what you expected when you went to a game. I don't think you can do that at the moment with Saints. I don't know what this identity they're searching for is. It doesn't appear to be this high-tempo, high-pressing game, which is what was spoken about uh, when Pellegrino was appointed. It, it doesn't appear to be that they're, they're as defensively solid now as they were under Puel, and yet they're still not scoring the goals either, really. The goals are, uh, are not really flowing either, and they're struggling a little bit in the final third. I don't really know what their identity is. And, I, I mean, I would like, um, and, and it's, it's for me, obviously, in my position to ask, but I would certainly like the to speak to Pellegrino and actually hear his vision for, for what this identity is that he's trying to create. Because at the moment, I must admit, I'm struggling to spot it um, when I watch them playing that it just seems a bit like it's the same old story every week i think for me the the biggest concern with all of that adam is that pellegrino is still saying that we are trying to search for an identity i mean if i was a manager coming in i'd be thinking right this is the identity that i'm going to create and i'm going to know what it is i've got a clear path on how we're going to get there and this is how we're going to do it this is who's going to be involved etc etc you know, I guess my concern when you look at it now is we're, we're still talking about trying to find one quarter way into the season. And yeah, OK, we're thinking about a three-year contract here or whatever. But in terms of an identity, I mean, I still find it alarming that we've got to this stage of the season. And it's, it's almost like someone is waiting for someone else to say, right, yeah, this is the identity. This is what we're going to do. There doesn't really seem to be that, that strategy. I mean, going back to the Brighton game, which is obviously what we're trying to talk about here, that there was no counter-attacking. There was no pressing there was no possession football second half I mean we're just pretty scrappy giving the ball away there was no real threat to us you know we as you say we've spoken about it before but there there doesn't seem to be anything that we are starting to think right yeah we're definitely getting better at pressing that you can see that that's what's going to be the identity going forward or I mean all of it just seems really really ragged around the edges I would tend to agree with the majority of that and also, I think the other thing is I, I feel like he's still searching for, for for what is kind of the best team, the best players in the best formation. There's a lot of sort of one change, you know, direct change. This person comes out, this person comes in. And it's almost like just trying to find, hoping that you'll find that, that formula that just, you know, it just clicks. And then suddenly, well, we're off. That's it. This was the, this was the team I was searching for. But the majority of players have been tried now and the majority of combinations. And I think he really needs to make a, a concerted effort for my money to actually just play the same team as much as he can, well, by injuries allowing, etc., in the formation he wants and just get them to play the style he wants and just accept whatever comes after that. Don't be nervous about whether that means bad results or not because the results at the moment aren't great. Which, in a way, sounds bonkers, because obviously they're not. They're, they're safely in mid-table. But the point is, they're, they're safely in mid-table after fixtures that we know have been very kind and with fixtures that we know are very difficult coming up. Now, it's not to say they can't win those fixtures that are difficult coming up. Of course they can. It's two teams playing against each other. 
but the re- they've got to play all the top six in that period before New Year's Day. And the reason the top six are in the top six is because they win most of their games. So the chances are you're going to struggle to get points in those. And the problem they've then got when we're talking about pressure is they have got some winnable games in between in, in the Merck. So they've got to play like Everton at home. They've got to play Huddersfield at home. Uh, they've got to play Leicester at home. Uh, so there are some, and they've, they've got to go to Bournemouth. There's some winnable games in there. But the problem is if you're losing quite a lot of those games around them, the pressure on those games is going to be massive, which makes it all the harder to get a result, especially as your opponent knows what pressure you're under. And, and that that's my fear for Saints. I think they really need to just, and he really needs to just be really decisive now and just think, right, this is it. This is going to be my team. This is what I, who I believe in. I'm just going to play them. I'm going to give them the confidence and belief that I'm going to play them and we're going to play my style from now on. And, and if it doesn't work, then I know what the consequences are. Absolutely. Well, I think certainly at the moment, if we were a paint, I reckon we'd be Magnolia. Pretty boring, dull to look at, but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say effective, but it does a job of uh, some sort of stun there. But there we go. Let's let's go from talking about one current Saints manager to talking about two previous managers in our pushed and pulled section. <laughs> Two ex-Saints managers were in the news quite a bit this week, Adam. Ronald Koeman and Claude Puel. Obviously, in a spooky set of footballing fixtures, Puel's first game as Leicester boss meant he played Everton in the first Premier League game after Koeman had been sacked by them. The game ending 2-0 to Leicester today, so obviously a good start for him. Starting with Koeman, Adam. Everton sold Romelu Lukaku in the summer for around £90 million after he'd pretty much single-handedly led them to seventh place last season with his goals. A bit like Spurs after they sold Gareth Bale, I guess. They went and signed about 28 players with the £150 million that they had to try and fill the void. Players like Michael Keane, a decent Premier League defender last season with Burnley, probably £10-15 million in the market, bought for £30 million, hasn't really lived up to that price tag. Even players like Sigurdsson, who no doubt has quality and has proven in the Premier League with Spurs and Swansea, signed for a vastly inflated fee of £45 million, hasn't hit the ground running. They brought in other players like Davy Klassen, Wayne Rooney, and let's not forget, obviously, Honduras' number one defender, Kuka Martina, as well. But results haven't matched the investment made, and the Grim Reaper wielded his scythe on Koeman's Everton management career. When you look at that 10 games in, were you surprised Koeman was sacked in the end, or did you think it was inevitable? No, it was inevitable in the end, wasn't it? And, and he almost looked like he was ready to be put out of his misery, maybe even uh, earlier than that. I mean... It's very difficult to know where the blame lies with what's happened at Everton. It's like so many modern clubs, where a lot of the transfer dealings are not really anything to do with the manager particularly. I mean, they they may have an input, they may have a say, but obviously so many of the transfer deals at clubs are being done by other people, and the managers are being given those players to manage. Now, it was clearly not going to be an easy situation to deal with losing uh, Romelu Lukaku, uh, obviously a, an absolute world-class striker, one of the best strikers in world football, leaving you is clearly going to be a significant blow. But to then not sign a replacement, even if that replacement's inferior, which uh, almost certainly they would be, but to not even go out and really seem to sign another striker or, or in, and indeed almost seem to be, be happy to go through to this period till January virtually without even having a striker anywhere in the club it seems or one available to play regularly it just seems extraordinary to me that they 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 did that now how and that has been probably one of the major undoings and how much of that is ronald kuman's fault and how much of that lies with other people higher up the food chain in everton i i obviously we're looking from a distance i can't say i don't know but it is interesting this is sort of part of modern football now it is the managers increasingly are the ones that are, that are being made the scapegoats um, and a lot of the people obviously who are the people who are responsible for transfer policy and this is a generalization because I don't know the situation at Everton specifically so I'm not close enough to it but um, a lot of the people who are obviously making the transfer policy decisions are also the people who are making the managerial decisions now those not to say there weren't other problems at Everton because there did appear to be other problems there but it's such a significant part of the problem that they've suffered uh, that it's pretty hard to ignore. I mean, 
as a manager, I think managers now, especially a lot of the foreign managers, they kind of are willing to just put up with this because obviously if you if you are the one that's going to be made the scapegoat, well, you end up playing the game and just keeping your mouth shut because the amount of money that you end up getting paid to, to leave is so absolutely mind-bogglingly huge that modern managers are prepared to put up with this. And whether that's what's happened to Koeman or not, who knows? But, yeah, I mean, it's his reputation that suffered now. And, and for all that talk of uh, taking over at Arsenal or taking over at Barcelona, it feels like a long way off for him now. Koeman, of course, is... Tips without mayonnaise is no tip. <laughs> Did you hear that, Adam? No, no, I didn't hear that. Oh, maybe, maybe it was just me. I thought I heard the, the ghost of Ronald Koeman's management career there. Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, where was I? Koeman, of course, is well known to have told Saints board at the end of the 2015-16 season that the only way he felt he could take the club to the next level, I guess, was to be given serious amounts of cash to spend. I mean, we're talking tens of millions from, from what I understand. Obviously, it's different owners, different strategies at Everton, but surely Saints fans would have to be thankful that the board at that time didn't let their hearts rule their heads with him. Well, depends how you look at it. I mean, I put out a tweet, actually, after he'd gone last week, last Monday... I just said for, for two parties that seemed so content to part ways uh, as Saints and Everton were, um, there were the, it hasn't really worked out spectacularly well for either side, I don't think. Saints have ended up getting in a manager who they've sacked after one season um, and, and obviously brought in another one, and now there's some angst about the way the club's going forward. Everton have uh, appointed Koeman, and then Koeman's ended up getting sacked uh, obviously last week so neither side seems to have have done that well out of it considering what a, fa- a fabulous two years that they enjoyed together I think it's quite sad that it ended that way for for both parties because uh, Ronald Koeman I, I massively admired as a manager I was a big fan of his management and, and his management style which was not everybody's cup of tea I appreciate but I, I mean I really enjoyed it and I thought he was uh I thought he was an exceptionally good Southampton manager and I would like to have seen him carry on for a lot longer, actually. I think he would have been a good long-term manager for Southampton, uh, the kind of thing that uh, seems that we'll never have again <laughs> at the moment as uh, all the chopping and changing happens, which is uh, just typical of the Premier League. But I, I was very sad that it ended. And I think what was so extraordinary to me at the time was uh, maybe, maybe perhaps both sides, I think, perhaps overstated that overplayed their hand a little bit. I think Koeman felt that perhaps he had Saints backed into a bit of a corner and that they couldn't afford to lose him. And I think Saints felt very confident that that, that they had the keys to the safe and the keys to success. And uh, that actually it didn't matter who the manager was, that they, they just knew they had this recruitment and they had all these all these fancy things going on at Staplewood and that, that you could almost put anybody into, in charge uh, within reason, obviously. Uh, to coach the team and pick the team and it would go well and actually uh, both of those things were uh, in my opinion run true Saints don't haven't reinvented the wheel and Ronald Koeman isn't the greatest manager that's ever walked the the face of the earth I was going to ask do you just see him sort of waiting around for the right club role now or do you think he'll go back to Holland and take a bit of time and maybe look to take on the international job bearing in mind they're struggling a bit it could be good timing for that I guess yeah, I think that's perhaps a sensible move for him now. I mean, he, he had spoken about wanting that job at some point, but I think he felt that he would manage Barcelona probably before he managed Holland, and that would be his kind of pathway into retirement. But um, I'm not saying he wouldn't go straight to Barcelona, let's be fair. We know how they love to uh, appoint ex-players as managers, and you you can't get a much bigger Barcelona legend than that guy. So, I mean, it could still happen for him. It would. It's not necessary that he that he has to go and do something somewhere else like uh, other managers would have to because of his Barcelona background and pedigree. But the Dutch job, if it became available, would seem a fairly uh, sound and sensible move for him to take. All I'm saying with his move, regards to saying, just to clarify what I said earlier, is that I don't, I think it's too easy and it's too lazy to just sit there and go, Oh, greedy Ronald Koeman, greedy Ronald Koeman. Oh, he just went for somebody, waved some money in front of him. Because it, it, I just don't believe it was like that. Yes, all right, he got, he's, we knew he was getting some 
outrageous amount of money, and I'm sure that played some part in it somewhere. But I think there was a more fundamental breakdown between Ronald Koeman and the Saints hierarchy, effectively. And, and that was the problem. And you're right with what you said earlier, that he obviously wanted, he felt that he needed considerably more money uh, invested into the team to take them forward. But hasn't that been proven correct? Because they haven't really invested considerably more money. They've reinvested for players they've sold, but they haven't invested huge extra amounts more money. And all right, you could argue it's a manager's fault, two successive managers or whatever, but they haven't gone further forward since Koeman was there. They've got... They, they have gone backwards, haven't they, since Absolutely. Koeman? Let's be yeah. blunt about it. Yeah. So maybe he was right, and maybe the Saints' reaction was also correct, perhaps you could argue, because they didn't want to overspend, they didn't want to put the club into any financial peril. But maybe Koeman was also correct that without that, they were only going to move backwards. In terms of the relationship between him and Everton now, and in true Halloween style, it's very much rest in peace. But we're going to move to talk about Claude Puel now. Look, obviously... If Koeman getting the sack at Everton wasn't particularly spooky, then Claude Puel getting offered the Leicester job probably was. There were stories coming out of Leicester last week that his interview had gone very well and he'd impressed the board with his knowledge of um, the Leicester squad and visions for the future and that sort of thing, Adam. Were you surprised Claude Puel was the man to replace Craig Shakespeare in the end? Stunned. <laughs> Absolutely stunned. Obviously not once I'd, uh, once I'd heard the, the, the journalists who were, who were saying that it was likely to be him. Obviously, when he was first being interviewed, I wasn't stunned once I'd heard that because it was coming out of very good sources. But when I first heard Puel linked with Leicester, I thought, wow. Uh, yeah, when you just think, when, when Claude had gone, you just think, well, there's a manager that I will probably never hear of again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's somebody I'll never see again, I'll never meet again, and I'll probably never hear it. One day, I'll probably hear that. Uh, in a paper that they they read somewhere online that they've done something with they've got to the semi-final of the French Cup or something with a team that you never heard of or that there'll be something that would happen like that but otherwise you probably would forget kind of almost forget that year even happened to, to a certain extent and like so many other faceless players that come and go so often yeah oh god yeah he used to play for Saints didn't he so I was absolutely stunned when he got the Leicester job really but. I think what it underlines is that the wider footballing world, as we've suggested before, actually believes that he did quite a good job at Southampton. The wider footballing world is hoping that I believe that Puel does do quite well and is hoping that Southampton do badly. And I think the reason for that is that they think that Southampton are a bit above their station and that if you think that eighth in the Premier League and get into the EFL Cup final is not good enough for for you, Southampton Football Club. Who do you think you are? Uh, I think that, that actually the appointment of him at Leicester goes to show that the wider footballing world does believe that he, he did a good job at Southampton. I never got a chance to meet him, but certainly he appears someone who wanted to do well with, with Saints. And I, I think certainly I admired his, his passion when we did score a a rare goal, but I think certainly I wasn't necessarily surprised that they parted ways as well. You've obviously spoken about the the wider footballing world there. What what about him? Do you think he feels he's got a point to prove in English football or not? I would think very much so. At the end of last season, when the interviews with him were very interesting because I felt it was the the first time at the end of last season that he started to show a little bit of spark, and I, I you kind of wish for his sake that he would have perhaps shown a bit more of it a bit earlier. But at the end of last season, he was obviously continually being hounded by questions of, to paraphrase, you're basically going to get the sack, aren't you? <laughs> and and he was having to, to hear that pretty much every press conference he sat through, being asked about his own future and whether he was going to get sacked and whether that was fair. And just at the end of last season, he started to get a little bit uh, snappy about it and a little bit you know, defensive and defending himself and I remember there was one press conference here that, that he snapped a little bit and there was one, I think uh, if I remember rightly, Saints maybe played Middlesbrough away at the end of last season and he was uh, asked about his future after that game and yeah, he, he sort of bit, so what exactly did you expect I was going to do? More or less well, uh, we, we, we got to the cup final which we should have won and we're we're going to probably finish eight. What what exactly did you think I was going to be able to do here? Claude is a bright guy, 
So he would have learned a lot. I think he'll know he needs to be more engaging and from the start. But he came in, and when he arrived at Saints, he spoke very, very pidgin English, really not great. The first time I met him, he'd been here a week or two, and we did a, a sit-down, not, not filmed or anything, and it was a real struggle. Um, his English was not great. That improved markedly. By the end of the season, yeah, he was his English was great. Now, what people might have found boring about what he said was that was just Claude. They just found Claude boring, but his English was fine by the end of it all. And also, he never managed in English football, so he was he was feeling his way as he went. He didn't know the league, he didn't know the players particularly well, and then he had this communication problem both with the press and with the players as well. These were significant problems for him, very significant problems. And he never really recovered from the fact that he had a sort of a bit of... He underwhelmed people at the start. Now, I don't think he's going to make that mistake twice. Because he knows the league now. He knows the teams. He knows the players in depth. And he's clearly got something about him as a manager. And on top of that, I think he will have learned in terms of his communication style. And the fact, obviously, now he speaks fluent English. So I think he's got every... He's got as good a chance as anybody with the squad that he's got there of, of doing a decent job. You would have missed it today, but it was funny on Sky Sports, actually. Jamie Carragher asked him a question, and uh, when Carragher had finished asking him the question, Puel had to say that he couldn't understand him. <laughs> um, and uh, Thierry Henry had to translate it in French for him so that he could answer it. So it was uh, it, it was nice to know that Claude is like the rest of us and struggles to understand Jamie Carragher anyway. But uh, I've got to say, I mean, I, I obviously, like many Saints fans, found it quite hard to listen to, to Paul talk before and after games. I mean, saying that... Uh, Pellegrino hasn't particularly inspired me in, in some of the ways he talks, to be honest. But, look, I mean, I saw a comment Claude made in his press conference, partly when questioned about Matt Latiz saying that uh, he'd made Saints boring last season, which was that we were seventh in the league for creating chances, but 20th for finishing them, which I think we'd all um, understand was completely right. When you look at their front four strikers, I mean, they've got, what, Vardy, Slamane, Iniacho, Okazaki... You have to fancy that Leicester, I mean, they're, they're four, you know, I would say better quality strikers than Saints have. So you have to uh, to sort of fancy that if he can create as many chances as he was at Saints, they're going to score more goals. And therefore, he will do a better job of, of um, probably be better received as a Leicester manager. Yeah, well, he scored two already. There's two in the plus column already for him, which, uh, yeah, I mean, the, bearing in mind how hard they were to come by at Saints at the end of last season, particularly, that uh, does seem remarkable. But... I think as well, the struggles at the end of last season very much coloured people's judgments on Claude because they hadn't been happy, particularly happy all season. But actually, well, I think we've, we almost have blacked out the, the, the period that happened uh, at the start of the season when actually they played some reasonable stuff and they played some, you know, they had some reasonable games and they certainly gave some of the big teams a run for their money, even if they didn't quite end up getting the results um, out of it. And obviously they had a very good cup run with, you know, we've, we've almost sweep under the carpet the wins against Liverpool and the win at Anfield and things like that and, and the, the Wembley thing because the, the last in football always the last few results are the ones that, that matter most and the last few that he had at the end of last season obviously were really really tedious I think the trouble was just to end on, on him is that I think Saints fans had quite a connection with Koeman. Um They didn't really make a connection with Puel at any point. I, I remember being at the San Siro for the, the game last year and I watched him come out and he walked all the way down to the corner flag right in front of the Saints fans to do a couple of press pieces before the game. Um, and I remember standing there thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to wait for a few people to clap and then as long as they do, I'll, I'll clap along. And no one clapped and he walked all the way down and I just thought... If that had been a cumin or something, he would have been serenaded all the way down to the corner flag. And it was just, it was almost like no one really ever took the time to notice him or anything like that. And as I said earlier, I'm not surprised that Saints have moved on. And as a fan, I wasn't disappointed necessarily that, that we parted ways. But I just think certainly there was a lot, and I know you've mentioned it before, a lot of frustration and abuse that he got that probably wasn't warranted. And I think certainly, I, I think most Saints fans actually are probably pleased to see him back in in the Premier League we can get to to watch him again a bit you know you know as an outsider and, and sort of wish him well so certainly I think from my point of view I think other than when they play us it would be good to to see Leicester do well and I think good to see him do well and it'll be interesting also to see how he gets on and lots of uh, sort of um, comparisons will be made I'm sure but um, yeah as I say I think certainly wish him all the best and uh, we'll see what happens. To finish up this week's Total Saints podcast, we're going to look at Burnley next week. Adam, never an easy side to play against Burnley. No, it's one of those uh, famous cliches now, isn't it? Oh, it's going to be a tough game. 
another defensive team coming to St Mary's. Uh, they'll put everybody behind the ball. They'll be very well organised. Uh, yada yada yada. Same old, same old. But actually, you know what? Forget Burnley just for a minute. We know exactly what to expect for them. This is this game has got to be about Saints for for me. I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, the pressure's on. And, and now they really need to win this game. I think this is a really, really significant game for Southampton. If they win this, I think they can kind of go into that international break and they can breathe easy and they can reflect again and, and hopefully come again into that period um, where they've got these difficult games and at least feel that they're not under pressure to get things in those games. You don't want to be playing the top six feeling like you have to get something. You want to be able to play with a bit of freedom against those guys. You probably expect to lose. And then if you don't, bonus points. Big win. You know, you, you beat an Arsenal. Wow, brilliant. You've got a point against Chelsea. Great. Well, that's what you want. You don't want to feel like we've got a point against Chelsea. Oh, God, yeah. But look where we are in the table after that because everybody else won. Actually, you, you want those to be the pressure off type games. If they're going to be the pressure off type games, then you need points on the board before you play those teams if the fixture, your fixture list has fallen the way it has and to me those Saints are comfortably sat in mid-table I think it's a it, it feels like it could be it could prove to be a potentially false position just because of the way the fixtures have been things could get a lot harder I mean you look at the table now and you look at what between second bottom and and seventh I mean you could virtually throw a hanky over them so there's really not much in it and, and yet Okay, it feels like quite a lot because the games have been so so sporadic. I mean, what we're going go to the weekend of the 18th of November, and everybody would have played 11 matches, which is obviously nothing for for the middle of November. But after we all know from then on, the games really are going to get rolling, and there's going to be huge amounts of movement in that league table. And you want to be in the in the driving seat at that period of time. You don't want to be the ones going in reverse. Assuming that Mario Lamina is, is still out, I think he bumped into someone, I think, in town in Sprinkles or somewhere like that and told them he's probably looking at a month or so. But I guess with the international break, that will help a little bit. But it's a classic place to get Southampton gossip, isn't it? Sprinkles. Exactly. I mean, if you're going to get injury news, it's more reliable than Club Call or those sort of places these days, isn't it? So, Absolutely. I mean, is there anything you change from the Brighton lineup then to counteract Burnley and what they'll bring? Oh, well, yes. I think I probably would change things from, from the Brighton lineup. I was. A little bit surprised by, by what he did for Brighton, actually. I'm, I've got to be completely honest. It did take me somewhat by surprise. The rotation of centre-halves policy seemed to be back again for uh, reasons that I honestly couldn't fully understand. Um, I mean, I suppose Wesley's hoot is a slightly more imposing physical presence. And so maybe with Murray up there, he wanted him there. But I, again, I was slightly baffled as to what uh, Yoshida had done wrong to end up getting dropped just on that before you carry on I mean, do, do you think it's just a case of a manager trying to keep three players happy for two positions I don't really know I don't, I don't, I'm, honestly I don't know I was surprised to see it I thought well they seem to have settled on uh, Yoshida and Van Dijk and they seem to be making a little bit of progress together I felt anyway I thought they were doing okay and and uh, I guess maybe in, in Saints' ideal world I guess Wesley and Virgil are the are the, probably the first choice pairing in their ideal world scenario in the long term now who knows whether that will happen for, for fairly obvious reasons that I'm sure we will dissect in great detail in the months ahead but can't wait yeah I know it's going to be great isn't it it's been so long but yeah so I was surprised maybe it's him trying to keep players happy maybe he's trying to pick horses for courses I don't know but I tend to think in that spine of the team that you really want as much consistency as you can get and then elsewhere in the team, if you're going to be without Lamina, I suspect he'll go back to 4-2-3-1 again, having had this sort of foray into 4-1-4-1. But that's partly because I think Brighton played 4-4-2 was why he wanted to do that uh, for the midfield numbers as much as anything. At home, you want to play more attacking players. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what, what he does and whether... Uh, I think probably the most interesting one is whether he sticks with Buffal now. Because, <laughs> because obviously he felt... I think he probably felt compelled after everything that happened with the uh, with the wonder goal last week and then the celebration, which it it did turn out was Bouval giving Pellegrino a little bit of his uh, opinion of whether he should be playing or not, mm. and and then of course he goes right, okay, you can have your chance, and he plays, and 
uh, I would say, an average performance and no more than that at Brighton. He, he did actually put in a little bit of work. Buffel, he showed a bit of discipline playing out on the left in the four, so fair play for that. But creatively, it was back to not a great deal again, which is what we'd seen before that goal. Yeah, and then obviously Long, Austin was out injured and, and Pellegrino's reasoning for was that he didn't want to have both Long and Gabbiadini on because he obviously wanted to have a striker on the bench if he needed that impact later on in the game. So Long made ways. I, I guess you would say Long didn't get picked because Austin was too was injured and couldn't be on the bench, which seems a curious way of doing things. But nonetheless, you you would throw him back in, I would suggest, at home. Just on Burnley then, to give them some uh, airtime. I appreciate we don't need to give them too much because this is a Southampton podcast, but there we go. Um, Sean Dyche has obviously been linked with the Everton role a fair bit over the last few days since Koeman moved on. What, what have you made of the job that he's done with Burnley? And I guess also Burnley since they've come back up to the Premier League, Adam. They're obviously they're, they're one of those clubs that you feel like are punching above their weight to some extent, don't you? I mean, there's quite a few of them in the Premier League now. And when you look into the Championship and you see the size of some of the clubs in there, it's, it's very surprising. There is a bit of an about turn. There are clubs with fairly small grounds or archaic grounds, fairly small support or modern history at least not not favoring them being particularly successful that have found their way into the premier league and have kind of become fixtures there and there are some big clubs with huge stadiums massive support uh, great history who have found themselves just entrapped in the in the lower reaches of the footballing pyramid particularly in the championship and burnley are one of those teams that i think continue to punch above their weight it would be very uh, interesting. I'm not wishing it upon them, but obviously it'd be very interesting to see what would happen to them if Sean Dyche were to leave, because he is obviously a significant part of their success. Uh, they're a very honest team of uh, very uh, hard-working players. They're obviously very well organised. Uh, they've got a little bit of quality, but not loads of quality. But they they know what they're about. They're one of these teams. They're not ashamed of what they're about. They're not embarrassed to be a team that are going out to be very solid and very hard to beat every game and trying to start every season with the aim of staying in the Premier League. They think that's a fair ambition and that's what they're going out for all the time. And, you know, we know they've got some one or two decent players. Obviously, we know one of them, one or two of them fairly well as well. So, you know what to expect from them. If Saints could do what they did this week against Brighton when they play Burnley and get an early goal, well, that really would set the game up because Burnley would, would eventually have to come out of it. And you fancy that that would really suit Saints. If not, this could be another long afternoon of having to remain very, very patient while Burnley defend for their lives and Saints knock on the door in that manner that they do. You've built it up. You're on a roll. 1-1, Brighton, correct. What's your prediction for Burnley next week? I have to say, and maybe it's just because I've uh, come back from this one, just the way things are, I'm not optimistic. I've got to be honest. I'm going to go. I, I, I'm on such a run now with my predictions <laughs> that I'm, I'm almost stuck by fear now that I can't do anything else. So I'm going to go for another one-one. That's all right. I thought you were going to go for a defeat there. So. Uh, that... Oh no, no, no! I'm not that pessimistic. I mean, Burnley. They're de- let's be honest. They haven't got a huge amount of attacking quality. I don't really see them winning, but I think they've probably got enough about them that. They, if Saints don't play well, they could they're good enough to get a draw out of that game. And uh, I just fear for Saints at the moment. I just I, I hope that things sort of really pick up for them. But you know when you just feel like they need something to happen. And I thought maybe Buffal's goal that might be the moment as we discussed last week. That might be it. This is it. This is it. Something magic has, has sort of happened, and that's galvanised everybody. And let's go. But then it was it, it just went back again this week, and you just think well. They need something to happen, and it hasn't happened this week. So you wonder, is it going to happen next week? Well, look, I have one one again as well. So obviously, I'm not going to go with that now that uh, you, oh, you no, do. No, so. no, you can't copy so, me. You didn't have it anyway. Well, did I, I did. I can, I can. Because I got my prediction right, you're like, I'll wait till I hear what Leachie says, look, look. and then I'll say it. But what I'll do is I'll say, well, oh, I can't go for that. So effectively, you're getting two predictions. Because if it's one all, you'll say, 
That's what I would have gone for. Look, on, honestly, look, I don't need this. I can take a picture of my notes and send it to you right now. So look, just uh, <laughs> look in, in true reverse psychology manner. Then I'm 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 genuinely not trying to look like a Halloween pumpkin here. And my official prediction is one all, Adam. So we're we're just laying that on the line now. But I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna go for a Burnley to win two one. Then all right, just from a reverse psychology point of view. Okay, is that acceptable? Well, you can do whatever you want, but one all is not your official prediction unless you go for one all. You could go for the same as me. Uh, that, if you're yeah, confident. That's a bit predictable in itself then, isn't it? So, uh, look, okay, well, let's just hope they get... I mean, they need three points from it, no doubt about that, but... Uh, I think we'd both be happy to be wrong, wouldn't we? Let's be honest. It would be good for everybody's sake around Southampton if if we were both wrong and Saints get a really great win to take into that international period and there's a feeling, an upward feeling, when they come back to go to Liverpool and have all these hard games. At least there's some points on the board. There was a good... Uh, last result and uh, signs of some progress there and and at least then everybody will be happy and positive and that would be would be happy to be wrong if that was the case here here thanks so much for listening to the 12th episode and halloween special of the total saints podcast adam and i hope you enjoyed it thankfully the game against brighton wasn't a complete nightmare in the end but it certainly left many of us screaming in irritation 10 games in and there is a heck of a lot of progress for Pellegrino and his Saints team to make. The season appears it could still very much go one of two ways. Maybe we should see it as a positive that they've achieved a mid-table position without really getting going so far. Or maybe we should be more worried about the creepy set of fixtures hiding around the corner, ready to feast on Saints like a vampire in desperate need of blood. The pitchforks never seem to be far away from St Mary's these days. Adam, thanks for joining us as ever. Have a good week and promise you won't scare too many of those children when they knock on your door trick-or-treating this week. I don't know what you think I'm going to do. <laughs> it's the cravat. That's what I'm worried oh, about. Oh, just, oh, yeah. the cravat, of yeah. course. Yeah, I forgot about the cravat and the pipe and the slippers. and the yeah. Dress again. yeah, just none of that. Just something more relaxed, all right? Promise. Okay, okay. I'll, 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 yeah, I'll wear jeans and a T-shirt and a hoodie. How about that? Much better, all right. Cool. Well, have a good week and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Fingers crossed after three points against Burnley. In the meantime, this has been the Total Saints podcast. I've been Ben Stanfield. Thanks for listening and keep marching in. Tips without my is no tip. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.